Father, we gather here in this place because we long to lift up our voices and hearts together as one, to praise you for all that you are, to express gratitude for all that you've done to take us as rebels and restore us and reconcile us as sons and daughters. We gather to praise your name for the free offer of grace through Christ. And Jesus, we long to see you lifted up this morning in Philippians 4. In spirit, we are humble and desperate for your help as we turn to the preaching of your word this morning. You promised in Isaiah 55 that as the rain accomplishes its purpose, watering the earth and providing life, so your word, as it goes forth, provides life to the hearer. And so we pray for life this morning, for reminders in our hearts of the goodness of your word, for the abundance of your grace toward us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Charles Simeon is born in the year 1759. He lives through the Great Awakening, and he lives through the American Revolution. And with suspicious help from his wealthy father, he becomes the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, at the age of 23. Now, this is a prominent posting for such a young, untested man. And the church family totally rejects him. They're offended by the way his father has manipulated the bishop in order to get him into this role. And they prefer another man, an interim, who had served them well during the period. Now, the church members rejected him to the point that they refused to come to the morning services to hear him preach. And instead, they hired a second preacher to come and preach to them on Sunday afternoons. Now, word of Simeon's faithful preaching gathered a crowd anyway, and they had to stand in the aisles because the pew holders who rented those particular pews locked their doors. And so the pews remained empty and the aisles were teeming with people. Well, Simeon saw this, and at his own expense, he rented chairs and lined the aisles with chairs, only to find the next Sunday the church members had taken the chairs and thrown them into the churchyard. Now, this went on for 12 years. Simeon endured under these circumstances. And I just want to take the time to thank you for your kindness (laughs) to my family. Now, Simeon's issues extended beyond his church family. He lived on Cambridge University's campus. And the academic community absolutely despised and ridiculed him for his evangelical faith and for his commitment to preach the Bible. So professors began to schedule classes during his services so that students who did want to come and hear him preach couldn't. And while some students came to faith as the Spirit worked through his preaching, many others chose to disrupt the services while he was preaching. Things got so bad for Simeon that he marvels one day that one of his colleagues chooses to walk with him in public around the college campus for 15 minutes. That's how difficult it had been for him throughout those 12 years. Now, here's the amazing thing. Charles Simeon remained the pastor of this church for 54 years. And all that time, he never married. He devoted himself wholly to the ministry of the gospel. And his ministry was marked by bold preaching and intense love for the people that gathered there. 
and a commitment wholeheartedly to Christ. Now this requires commitment. This requires contentment. This requires deep satisfaction in God's fatherly care for him. You can't endure that kind of ongoing, persistent persecution without some sense that God is with you and for you and strengthening you. A hundred years before Simeon is born, there's a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he offers this definition that I'm going to put up on the screen for you in a few minutes. But for now, just listen. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So when things occur, or when things persist, or when things get worse, Burroughs is holding up for us this jewel of Christian contentment. It's a rare jewel. It's hard to find. It's, it takes work to cultivate, but it's possible for the Christian. We can't force it. We can't fake it. It's only produced as we stare at Christ and are satisfied with all the blessings that have come to us because of our relationship with Jesus. So where are you struggling to be content this morning? Either because you have too little and are despairing, or because you have too much and you're distracted. Where are you struggling to be content this morning? Take that situation in hand and let's lean into Philippians 4 together. In verses 10 through 12, we see Paul holding before us the secret of contentment. And the fact that the secret of contentment is something we need to learn. According to Paul, contentment is to be learned. It's to be cultivated over time. And remember Paul's situation. He's chained to a Roman soldier in Rome waiting for the verdict of the emperor. Look at verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Why is Paul rejoicing in the Lord exactly? If it's the Philippians that have provided him help, why is Paul rejoicing in the Lord greatly? Well, it's because they've revived their concern for him, and Paul is acknowledging that the reason they're doing this, it's because the Lord has directed them to. The Lord is the one to be thanked and to be rejoiced in in light of the Philippians' support of Paul. He sees God's hand in the Philippian gift. Now, the Philippians have revived or stoked their concern for Paul. Paul, who had introduced them to the gospel in the first place. And how did they do it? Well, we saw in chapter 2 that they sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, from Philippi to Rome with a financial gift. And this financial gift was meant to support Paul, who needed to pay his own rent and pay his own way, though he could not work because he was under house arrest. And so the Philippians sent Epaphroditus, and he gives Paul the rent money, and he gives Paul the grocery money, and then he stays with Paul to minister to his needs. And notice the absence of self-pity in Paul. He's sitting in prison waiting for the verdict of the emperor, waiting to find out if his will be a death sentence. 
And there are a few trusted coworkers with Paul. Money is running short, but you cannot detect self-pity in his voice, and you can't detect a guilt trip in what he says. Paul doesn't demand Philippians self-pity. He doesn't demand their pity because of his suffering. He doesn't need the Philippians to feel bad for him because of his lot in Rome. Look at verse 10. Paul gives them the benefit of the doubt. He knows their concern for him. He's thinking the best of them. He knows that they've just lacked opportunity. And we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that it's very likely that this church is not wealthy, that the churches in Macedonia were not well off financially. Now, Paul's joy is mysterious, isn't it? Without contentment, Paul is left with one gear, and that's grumbling. Just think of what he's risked for the gospel. I've risked everything for the gospel. All across the Roman Empire, I've laid down and risked my life for the sake of this message that it would go to these people. And yet I've been rejected and persecuted and betrayed by my own people. I was stoned once. I was whipped with 39 lashes five times. I was beaten with rods three times and shipwrecked three times. I spent a whole night and a day floating on the open sea. I've been tired. I've been hungry. I've been cold. I've been thirsty. And now I'm in the under house arrest and there are very few people to support me. Many Christian leaders have used self-pity to manipulate and control and pressure the people around them. They brand themselves as wounded and exhausted servants of Jesus who need the unhealthy sympathies and lavish financial support and inappropriate favors of people they've been called by God to serve. Self-pity is dangerous in the heart of any leader. But Paul's contentment has starved his grumbling. Contentment has suffocated self-pity. He doesn't pander or beg for Philippian sympathy. He doesn't guilt them for their delay in providing help. Yet Paul doesn't want the Philippians to misunderstand his contentment. Look at verses 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is not casting shade on their generosity. But Paul doesn't want them to misunderstand his contentment either. Contentment doesn't arrive when the hardship goes away for Paul. Contentment has been there all along. We learn contentment over time. It takes practice to release our grip on created things and to embrace our creator alone. Look at the middle of verse 11. For I have learned... And in verse 12, I know. In the middle of verse 12, I have learned. Paul is letting us know that contentment needs to be learned. It's unnatural and it's difficult to produce. And so Paul needs to learn it. 
He needs to learn contentment in seasons of humility and hunger and need. He has to cultivate a heart that quietly trusted God's goodness and wisdom when circumstances were painfully difficult. And Paul needs to learn contentment in seasons of abundance and plenty, which seems less logical in the context. But abundance does not equal contentment. Like income doesn't equal wealth. You could have significant income and spend it all and have no wealth. You could have significant circumstances and significant stuff and have no contentment. Paul cultivates a heart that quietly trusts God's goodness and wisdom when there's plenty and when there's abundance. He learned to love his creator more than created things, more than being distracted by creation. He was devoted to the creator. And this kept him content and not desperately wanting more. And it kept him content when God took things away from him and he was left with less. Now here's Jeremiah Burroughs' definition again from the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that does two things. Freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal leadership in every condition, in all seasons. So how do we learn the secret of contentment. If it doesn't come naturally to us, how do we learn the secret of contentment? When things occur in our lives, when things persist in our lives, or when things get worse, how do we learn the secret of contentment? How do we learn to freely submit to and to delight in God's wise and fatherly leadership in our lives? Four things for you. The first, pursue a quiet heart. We must teach our hearts to be quiet. Not quiet as in silent or stoic. Not silent as in unfeeling, detached from reality. Not that kind of silent. But a quiet as in humble and still and trusting. Burroughs gives us the image of a young mother who knows how to comfort her small child. Do you have that image? This is what we need to do with our own hearts. In abundance or in scarcity, we must learn how to shepherd our own hearts, how to instruct and comfort our own hearts to be quiet before the Lord's leadership, to tell God about our pain with a quiet heart, to tell friends about our pain with a quiet heart, a heart that's quiet because it trusts the Father's leadership. It trusts the Father's love. If he gave me Jesus, then what need will God withhold from me? If he gave up what was most precious, then what need in my life will God withhold from me? Pursue a quiet heart. Secondly, reject a judgmental spirit. See, we want to jump into the judge's seat. We want to climb into the judge's seat and decide if our pain and our hardship will be good and helpful. And if we climb into the judge's seat and if we can envision a way that this thing could turn out for good according to our own sense of things, 
well, then we can be content. But if our pain seems senseless, or if it feels pointless, or if it appears unwise, then discontent rises in our hearts. And so we complain and murmur. We fret and worry. We're vexed and rash. We feel despair and self-pity. We are selfishly distracted from God and distracted from others. And instead, we focus only on this thing in my life that won't go away. And we lose sight lines towards God's glory and we lose our sight lines from the needs of other people around us because we can only focus on this thing that does not feel good. But we don't have the visibility to see eternal good. We can't see that far in every circumstance to know how many twists and turns God will take us on so that this thing will do us good. And we don't have the patience to wait for eternal reward. We want it now. And so God maintains the role of judging what in our lives is good and what will last. We can't assume that God doesn't love us because of a, a scarcity or a humility or a want. We can't assume God cares any less for us because someone else has more stuff or less suffering than we do. Reject a judgmental spirit, pursue a quiet heart, and welcome, don't demand, a reprieve. We tend to sink in despair or impatiently shift around to get relief. Quietly seeking relief from trouble is not problematic. Paul flees several cities in Acts when persecution arises. Jesus himself slips out of the Jewish leader's grip several occasions, waiting for the time. But we often demand immediate relief rather than welcoming it. And we become impatient and frantic when it doesn't lift. Instead of bearing up under hardship and waiting for God to bring relief, or quietly, through the means that God has given us, work for relief, we demand it. We want it now. We need it now. Pursuing a quiet heart, welcoming reprieve. We do this not by adding to our possessions, Burroughs tells us. We do it by subtracting from our desires. We don't long for more of a circumstance in order to feel contentment. We long to subtract from our desires in the middle of that circumstance. Burroughs calls on us to allow our desires to melt into God's. Work to align your heart to your circumstances. This is what Jesus exemplifies in the garden before his arrest. He longs for the cup to pass, but not my will, but yours be done. He's modeling for us what it looks like for our desires to melt into God's. To subtract from our desires. To align with the circumstances that God has shepherded us into. Pursue a quiet heart. Reject a judgmental spirit. Welcome, don't demand a reprieve. And then number four, live a sojourner's life. This is an acknowledgement that we're not home yet. What a non-Christian has in this life is all they have. 
What a Christian has in this life is simply a deposit of the eternal riches that are to come. Everything now is a shadow of what is to come. We can deal without the comforts of home for a season, knowing that victory and rest will soon be ours. So in the midst of all this suffering, a friend comes to Charles Simeon and he asks him, how have you endured persecution? How have you outlasted all the great prejudice that's been against you all these years? My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, a line of bushes, when I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering, triumphing over death, and let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his glory. Live a sojourner's life. Realize that in Christ, your head and shoulders have already been pulled through. There's a real definite sense in which you are already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you are waiting for that time when Christ will call you home. And though we must learn the secret of contentment in all seasons, the source of contentment is outside of us. Pursue the source of contentment. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this verse has been famously taken out of context, maybe more than any other verse, right? You see it on t-shirts, you see it framed on walls, but this verse is not about climbing mountains. This verse is not about weight loss. Even a couple years ago, I was reminded of an article that said, uh, it was a satire article that said, worship pastor claims Philippians 4.13 to get into skinny jeans for Sunday morning. <laughs> this verse is not about any of those things. This verse is about contentment. We read it in the context that Paul wrote it. He's coming out of this paragraph on contentment and he arrives at Philippians 4.13 and says, I can do all things. What things? Paul can seek contentment in all things. In any and every circumstance, Paul can seek contentment and can be content. How? It's not in his own strength. Paul can do all things. Paul can pursue contentment through him who strengthens me. There's strength that comes from another that comes into Paul that allows Paul to seek contentment in any situation, in all circumstances. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. So how does Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, provide Paul in Rome with strength? In 1652, Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He writes, we have all things in Christ, and Christ is all things to a Christian. If we be sick, he is a physician. If we thirst, Christ is a fountain. 
If our sins trouble us, Christ is righteousness. If we stand in need of help, he is mighty to save. If we fear death, Jesus is life. If we be in darkness, Jesus is light. If we be weak, he is strength. If we be in poverty, he is plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way. Jesus is our strength. Paul is able to respond with a contented heart because he understands Jesus as his source of strength. Jesus fills the cup of our need to the very brim. So when things occur, or when things persist, or when things get worse, our cup is always full in Christ. Our hearts are filled to the brim with courage. Our minds can be filled to the brim with hope. Our bodies can be filled to the brim with strength. And very practically, this shows up for Paul when he makes his first defense before Caesar while he's awaiting a death sentence. Paul writes to the young man in the faith, Timothy, about the reality of Jesus' strength and how Paul experienced it. 2 Timothy chapter 4. At my first defense, when he first comes to Rome and he stands before Caesar, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now enter Paul's self-pity. Enter his grumbling. No. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. All deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father, but Paul says he stood next to him and strengthened him. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So if the job should vanish, or if the retirement account should be empty, Jesus stands to strengthen you. If the child should reject the gospel, or if you should be ridiculed for following Jesus, he will stand to strengthen you. If the doctor is completely out of treatment options, or if your chronic pain will not subside, Jesus stands to strengthen you. If God should call your wife through death, or if God should never provide you with a wife, Jesus stands to strengthen you. If you should find yourself lonely or if no friend seems to notice your pain, Jesus stands to strengthen you. If you should find yourself near to death and your heart fills with uncertainty of what's to come, Jesus stands to strengthen you. In any and every circumstance that you will face, that you are facing, in seasons of plenty or seasons of want, Jesus stands to strengthen you. And you can feel it just as sure as he's standing right next to you. But here's the thing. A promise of Jesus standing next to us 
to strengthen us only means something if we know him and enjoy him. While we were gone, Ezra learned how to swim. So picture him standing on the edge of the pool. What gives him the courage to jump into the water? Right? Mom or dad are in the water or nearby. And what moves him off the ledge into the water is the knowledge being persuaded that mom and dad love me enough to save me and are powerful enough to save me. Therefore, I'll jump. The promise that Jesus will lend you his strength is only meaningful if you've tasted the goodness of God. If you've tasted the rest that he's offered your souls, if you've tasted the power of knowing that he is for you in every circumstance, he is for you. To do this, we need to enjoy Christ's presence. We need to not just depend on his strength, we need to enjoy his presence. The biggest threat to you and I being satisfied in Christ is hurry and distraction. Our days are spent hurrying from one pressing commitment to the next. We build in no margin and no transition time between things. And our brains are utterly distracted from scrolling through social media feeds, grabbing sound bites and snippets of information. We are losing the ability to think carefully and deeply. We are losing the ability to do one thing at a time, to just sit and focus on one thing. But to savor the glories and the beauty and the power of Christ, we need time. You can rush through a poem. You can have the words go through your eyeballs into your brain. But unless you take time to reflect the poem will yield very little. Now, there was a friend who lived with Charles Simeon for a few years, and he left us with this memory. He writes, Simeon invariably arose every morning, though it was the winter season, at four o'clock. And after lighting his fire, he devoted the first four hours of the day to private prayer and the devotional studies of the scriptures. Now, I'm not sharing that with you because I think we all need to get up at 4 a.m. and spend the first four hours of our day in private prayer and devotion. However, I think we all need to invest more time than we probably are. And notice the result that this friend saw in Simeon's life. Here was the secret of his great grace and spiritual strength. Meaning here in his hours with the Lord, praying and reading his word, enjoying Christ, being satisfied with Christ, here was the secret of his great grace and spiritual strength. Deriving instruction from such a source and seeking it with such diligence, Simeon was comforted in all his trials and prepared for every duty. Simeon learned to savor, not rush through time in the Bible and time in prayer, and it filled him. He's like the man in Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit." 
The person, the tree that plants himself by this stream of living water does not fear when drought comes. This person can bear fruit regardless of the season. In all seasons, in every circumstance, can bear fruit. Why? Because their strength isn't sourced in themselves. They've planted themselves by a stream, a living stream, and Christ is that stream. A person devoted to investing the time to enjoy Christ's presence will bear the fruit of contentment. The spiritual battery is recharged daily. The spiritual armor is oiled and repaired. And therefore, this heart, strengthened such by this time enjoying Christ, will not despair in seasons of intense hardship and will not be distracted in seasons of great abundance. Here's Burroughs one more time. If a heart is full of the blessings of God, not just knowing them, but moved by them, convinced of them, if a heart is full of the blessings of God, that heart can be bruised, but it won't cry out because the cup of blessing has been filled to the brim in Christ. Do you have this kind of relationship with Christ? Do I have this kind of relationship with Christ? Is he a friend that we long to spend time with? Is this time that we long for each day? If not, a little discipline will go a long way at creating appetite. So plan. When will you read and pray? When? Where will you read and pray? What will you read and pray? If you sit down without a plan, your mind will wander like mine. When will you, where will you, and what will you read and pray? And then tell someone your plan, and then read and pray. Enjoy Christ's presence. Let's end here. Charles Simeon lay dying on his deathbed, and a friend asks him, what are you thinking about? Simeon replies, I don't think, I just enjoy. To be this satisfied in Jesus, you must trust him with your circumstances. We have to trust his fatherly love and leadership, whether in abundance or in need, because Jesus led the Calvary charge into suffering. He went first, he went deepest, and then he came back victoriously. This is what we read in Philippians 2, verse 3, being found form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in that obedience, in that suffering, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's in his suffering that God secures redemption. And we need to be convinced that God is working for those same redemptive purposes in our lives. This is what Paul is writing in Romans 8. The context of Romans 8 is suffering. Dee mentioned this earlier. I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Romans 8 is about suffering. It's about living in a fallen world and experiencing difficult circumstances. And then God commits famously to redemptive purposes. He commits that there will be no stray circumstance no circumstance that gets by his leadership and love. Nothing in our lives that will not work out for our good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Abundance and need for those who are called according to his purpose. 
there is an unbreakable chain that moves from God's foreknowledge of us and predestination of us all the way through to our glorification. He will finish the work he started. That difficult circumstance in my life and yours will work out for our good and for the good of the people around us as they watch. So no matter the circumstance, no matter the hardship, you can trust this God. You can satisfy yourself in Christ until contentment rises as the fruit of that enjoyment. Let's be satisfied together in Christ and pursue contentment as a family. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you've, you've shown us the way through suffering into victory, through want into plenty. And I pray that you would help our hearts to quietly respond to the Father's leadership in our lives, to learn to praise you in the midst of suffering, to learn to be content in seasons of want or seasons of plenty, knowing that you, Father, are good and powerful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.